Welcome back to our podcast, Regulation Matters, A Clear Conversation. Once again, I'm your host, Lyne Dempsey. I'm the Chief Compliance Officer with Riccoveni Associates Family Dentistry. Uh, We have practices now in North Carolina, Virginia, and South Carolina, and I've also been a board member and president of CLEAR. As many of you are aware, the Council on Licensure, Enforcement, and Regulation, or CLEAR, is an association of individuals, agencies, and organizations that comprise the international community of professional and occupational regulation. This podcast is an opportunity for you to hear about current topics in the regulatory community. Each year, CLEAR considers nominations in several CLEAR award categories. The 2023 awards were presented in Salt Lake City during the annual education conference. While on Salt Lake City, I had the opportunity to chat with our award recipients, and I'm excited to share these conversations with you. So John Crumley is the recipient of the Investigative Excellence Award for an individual. This award recognizes an investigator in occupational professional regulation. The nominee must have demonstrated an exceptional performance in a particular case or a history of excellent performance beyond what is expected or required that resulted in a direct and significant impact to the protection of the public or consumer interests. Here's my conversation with John. Well, John, again, congratulations on the award, and thanks for chatting with me today. So can you provide an overview of the case that you were nominated for? And, like, you know, what were the initial allegations, and how did you become involved? Sure. So the initial allegations were made by some staff members of this hospital that had concerns regarding some discrepancies of one of the veterinarians and how they were recording rabies vaccinations and rabies certificate. And these staff members called our board office. And... After our board office received their concerns, we sent an inspector to the facility under a routine inspection, uh, and they collected examples of the medical records and then generated an inspection report. Then I was assigned the case as the investigator from my executive director, and I collected the inspection report, those samples of medical records, and spoke with the the inspector. And then I called some of the staff members uh, to do an initial remote uh, interview of these Mm -hmm. staff members. Uh, with, with a lot of trepidation and care because uh, all of these staff members were still employed at the hospital working side by side with right. the veterinarian they had concerns on. So uh, after I spoke with the staff members, I took my information to my executive director and our board council, and we decided that there was significant evidence to proceed, for one. But also, more importantly, we, we decided that we needed to issue a summary suspension uh, for two reasons. Uh, one being an ongoing risk to the public and their pets. And two, because of this individual's prior discipline history involved this individual modifying medical records that they supplied to the board, we wanted to ensure that we had, we ensured the integrity of the evidence. We wanted to make sure this veterinarian uh, didn't alter the medical records after they were made aware of of our investigation. So uh, we met uh, and developed a plan for the on-site evaluation and collection of evidence and all that evidence uh, constituted the evidence packet that went before the board for the hearing. Excellent. So if I'm correct, it was about 250 cases of suspected fraudulent rabies certificate from thousands of medical records. I mean, that seems like no small feat to, 
to examine. Can you kind of walk us through what the process was to review and identify what cases? Sure. We had our plan before we flew down to the hospital, and then of course we just threw the plan out and winged it. <laughs> of course. We, we went down. Sounds with like plan. my investigations from the days. <laughs> yeah, we we had our plan, and we we were we recognized things may change when we when we got there, but but our first plan was to issue the, the summary suspension for, for obvious reasons. And then once the veterinarian had uh, left the facility, uh, then we interviewed the staff. Uh, and during my interview with the staff, I really wanted to get a lay of the land of that hospital, how the operation, how things were done. Mm -hmm. uh, this, as you said, thousands of medical records. And just to complicate things, it was a combination of pre-printed forms, electronic medical records, and handwritten medical <laughs> records. So it, it was a lot to go through. Uh, and once we determined through the staff's help, how a veterinarian in that hospital would invoice a rabies vaccine, record it in the medical record, and then issue a travel certificate or a rabies certificate. Uh, once we determined that, we developed a system where we could search the electronic medical record looking for red flags, then go pull that in entire medical record, and then we just made copies of everything. Wow. So once we had copies of everything, which were, which were more than 250, as you probably would guess, because a lot of things fit our rubric, that may not have uh, demonstrated that the uh, vaccine was not given when right. the rabies vaccine was uh, issued. We fly back to our office and then we go through the hard, the hard task uh, of going through each individual medical record that fit our, our rubric and made sure there was sufficient evidence to show that you know, a vaccine was not given even though a certificate was issued. And these are rabies certificates just for uh, compliance with uh, state and county regulations, but also for international travel uh, because they were issuing health certificates for international travel as well. Wow. So did you have any, and I would assume you had reluctant witnesses given that you just, you know, arrived at the office, you know, summarily suspended the doc, um, and, and you've got some other people that this is their livelihood um, that you're affecting. Um, so what kind of strategies did you use to get them to cooperate with you? Because I can imagine that people were reluctant to, to speak to an investigator. Well, sure. Yeah. Uh, having been one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, you're exactly right. And I, I always try to uh, establish a personal connection. and. Being a member of the profession, being a veterinarian, I've got that that easy one uh, at first. You know, right. why did you become a veterinary technician? Why did you become a veterinarian? And then I try to share stories of my own practice, legit stories, just um, and be open and honest. Uh, also, I try to be very transparent of the process. You know, I try to talk them through what we're going to do and why, who's going to be involved, and what's their role. Right. Uh, and then finally, just talk about the intent of the board. You know, the intent of the board is to protect the health and safety of pets and the public. It's not personal. We're not out to get anybody. I think that helps, disarms people. For sure. So a, a lot of time and skill went into presenting the evidence as well um, in such a way that the hearing panel could see the intentional fraud. So how did you go about pre preparing and, and, and eventually presenting that case? Yeah, it's, a, it's a good point because it's a complicated case. Uh, anytime we go into a hospital in this manner, we're going to find other potential violations as well, not just the 250 incidents of right. rabies, uh, potential rabies certificates. Uh, was we, And we did find multiple other potential violations, and all of that went into my report. But the first thing I do on the first page of my report that goes before the board, I outline each potential violation 
Uh, and that way I give the board a roadmap of what they are to deliberate on. Right. Uh, and I want them to go back to that because it's so easy to get bogged down in all of the other stories and potential violations. Uh, and, and then we walked them through our, our rubric. We walked them through you know, how the hospital operated, how we developed our rubric to flag these records, and then how we examined those records. And then so that they could see for themselves when a veterinarian at that hospital saw a patient, gave a rabies vaccine, documented it, invoiced it, issued the travel certificate or the rabies certificate, how it looked like when they did it that way versus when they didn't uh, give the rabies vaccine and the difference in the documentation. Right. So obviously the impact of your investigation led to some severe sanctions um, against the veterinarian question. Um, can you discuss the significance of these sanctions in ensuring public safety and consumer interests? I mean, yeah. I mean, it seems a little clear as far as, you know, the fact that what was going on. But uh, I guess as, as a, a side question, too, I, I'm curious to know, like, what was what was the reasoning by not giving the shots? Yeah, uh, it's a good point because it goes along to intent. I'll address. Can I address the, the second sure. question? Yeah, yeah, first? yeah, yeah, because yeah, uh, the individual never uh, admitted to not giving the rabies vaccines or withholding the rabies vaccines and still issuing the certificates. And that went along to intent. Never admitted that they did it, uh, therefore uh, showed the intent uh, to commit it again. I mean, I always believe that intent is your best indicator of whether or not a person is going to, to uh, re-offend. And this clearly showed that the intent, the intent was there. Uh, the second part, you know, is that in our veterinary oath, we, we swear to use our knowledge, skills, and abilities to protect animal health and promote human health. And this veterinarian violated that core of our oath. 100%. Yeah. So I guess what did you learn from this case that could be a, a takeaway for other investigators? You know, I'm a data geek. You know, mm -hmm. I, I try to live a data driven life. Uh, and I do think that makes one aspect good for an investigator. But in this case, the, the data wasn't nearly as important as the people. Right. You know? And it really taught me to listen to the staff members, listen to everybody involved, uh, and be open, uh, sit quietly, speak less, mm -hmm. uh, and listen more. It, it allows people to uh, share their story with me because I, I do think our colleagues want to share our stories when they see somebody doing something that's a potential violation I know inside they want to bring it up but nobody wants to quote rat out a colleague sure. but if you give them the time uh, and, a, and a supportive environment they will fantastic well John uh, thanks for meeting me here in, in Salt Lake and again congratulations on the investigative excellence award uh, I was proud to present that to you today and uh, congratulations to that and hopefully we'll hear more from you in the future <laughs> thank you Jenny Hanrahan is the recipient of the Re regulatory excellence for an individual this award recognizes an individual demonstrating an outstanding contribution to the enhancement of occupational or professional regulation, regulatory processes, or consumer and public protection. The individual must have demonstrated exceptional leadership, vision, creativity, results, and outcomes above and beyond the regular functions of the job or expectations and beyond what is normally achieved. Here's my interview and conversation with Jenny.
Well, Jenny, congratulations on the award. You, you were uh, given the Regulatory Excellence Award uh, this week here in Salt Lake, and thank you for coming in and chatting with me today. Oh, my pleasure, and it was such an honor to receive that award. Um, I was uh, quite surprised, so uh, absolutely delighted um, and humbled um, uh, when I saw the video that Carew sent. <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know, you, you think about what you've done, uh, and uh, it's lovely to see other people acknowledging that. So I really did appreciate the award. Well, well deserved. Well, can you um, maybe tell us about your journey uh, from being an occupational therapist to becoming the CEO and registrar of Carew, Ireland's first multi-professional health and social care regulator? What inspired you to take that role? I suppose as an occupational therapist and as a manager in health, um, my role always had been to try and improve things for patients. Um, so my values sit very well with regulation. I also was the chairperson of the Association of Occupational Therapists of Ireland and in the late 90s the Minister for Health then, the future Prime Minister Micheál Martin, invited representatives from 15 professions to say look we want to regulate you but you know we have to look at what way we can do it. There's obviously not going to, you're too small to be doing individual regulations. Right. So I was involved when they were planning the legislation uh, at an earlier stage and I remember thinking gosh that would be an interesting job. So you have to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> so when the, when when they did finally uh, appoint uh, a board, a, a council, um, and they went looking for their chairperson, I thought, oh yes, I think I'll apply for that. I was at that time I was head of clinical services in Beaumont Hospital, which uh, had about thirty different professions. So many of them did come in under the health and social care uh, professional group that we were to regulate in later on in Crewe, and it was known as the Council for Life. It was known as the Health and Social Care Professionals Council, and as one of my colleagues said. Yeah, definitely named by a civil servant, definitely not for marketing. <laughs> uh, so one of the things we did do was get a, a, a marketing process, which was Carew. And the Carew wor- word, is it comes. it's a derivative of the Irish word core, which means fair, just and proper, which just fits very nicely with our, you know, with our, lo- with, with our ethos and what we're trying to do. Fantastic. Well, I know uh, just from talking with you in the past, you pretty much started out in a borrowed office with a laptop. Um, obviously, the award nomination mentioned you started a career from very humble beginnings, and that certainly sounds like it. But can you share some of you maybe some of the initial challenges you faced and, and how you overcame them to establish statutory regulation for, or for health and social care professionals in Ireland? Well, the, we had a fantastic chair who has since passed away, Margaret Hayes. She was the second secretary general. I'm not sure what that would be, but the top civil servant, one of the big projects. She was only the second woman to do that. A very smart woman. So when I came in, as the CEO, I was all keen to get the regulation up and running. And she said, hold on. She said, you actually need to put the administration in first. <laughs> so that was uh, 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 that was a, a good lesson. Um, but equally, my I started in May 2008. And then the economy started crashing around the world. And we had a bank guarantee in September 2008. So essentially, we were trying to get this agency up and running when there was no money in the country. Mm. Um, but uh, look, I'm very, whatever I am, I'm tenacious. So we just kept at it. And... Uh, we opened. We had our first board, which was our social workers board, in two thousand and ten, and we opened that register in two thousand and eleven, um, and have subsequently rolled on with the other professions. So I think it was about being tenacious. But for me, the important thing, as well as a regulator, is to be sure that your governance is all right. I've seen we've seen too many examples where a regulator's work has been completely undermined by poor governance and. Um, you know, I remember one of the best papers I went to was Diana Williams, who'd gone in as the administrator with a denturist in Ontario. And I think there was great interest going, OK, 
what went wrong there right. you know and lo- learning from that and there was also a very good paper from I think it was the Teachers Council in British Columbia um, you know where they had they, they had fallen over as well so it, you know mm-hmm. this is I won't say it's a high risk but you really need to get your governance right 100%. if you want to do regulation correctly so in your 15 years of leadership Karu um, what do you consider your most significant accomplishments in, in terms of like enhancing occupation and professional regulation, regulatory processes, or, or even public protection? What, what's been the... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we, we've set this agency up from scratch. We've had a lot of learning. And in 2012, I was saying, because what I have is I have a council that oversee uh, 12 boards at the moment. And it's not, you know, that's, that's, that's 48 meetings with the boards and then about another 10. Right. So you know yourself in a normal age, oh, it's a lot of meetings. Um, so we're looking at a different way. So we've only just, we've been campaigning to try and get some money to do a project on that. So it'll be an 18 month project, two really great people there, uh, um, Lee Lachlan and um, Gail, uh, who are, who are Macaulay, who are actually just doing the, the research and the work on that to look at how we can streamline that. I think there'll be a lot of learning from that. For me, um, I think one of the biggest things we did was we had 12 professions are regulated. We have a 13th one coming now, the social care workers. Um, and unlike Harry Caton, who would always talk about only validating existing professions, we've actually had to bring this one into place. And that's been very rewarding. It's taken us eight and a half years. It's absolutely the right thing to do. Social care workers work with the most vulnerable children in, earth, mm-hmm. in you know, child, children's homes, etc. Um, but for me, one of the really important things that was that we managed to get a code of professional content and ethics that's consistent across the 13 different professions. So whether you're um, you know, a, a diagnostic, working in diagnostics or working in therapy, or working in psychotherapy, psychosocial, this code of conduct applies. There's 26 sections that's exactly the same for all, and then the 27th is if some of the professions wanted to put something special on, and most of them didn't because it was Mm. all captured. So that's all up for review again. But for me, I thought that's a really good, that was a really good piece of work that we did. We've also um, put very good standards in for the education of of students coming on, and I think the learning of being a regulator where we have fitness to practice and what we can take from that to help that influence what the students need. And I think... The thing that's been most important for me that I've realised that if you're a frontline staff, and particularly after COVID, health and social care professionals, uh, you know, have been put under major stress. The, the resilience and the need to look after yourself is so important. So I think the other thing we have been trying to do, and I think most regulators should be doing, is influence the educators to make sure there's a good section in the undergraduate course or whatever course brings them in that will allow them to look after yourself. So important because... You know, that's when things go wrong. If somebody is not, uh, the two things I would say is be engaged, continue professional development, resilience, knowing when you can, when you need to take a break and when you don't, and, and putting that in as part of your career. I think we, we, we've talked about this before, you and I at least, that um, that importance of, of, of having a moment to recharge. Mm. Um, talk a little bit about that. I think it's absolutely critical. I mean, I've worked in very demanding jobs and I've just given everything and I have family. But it's actually looking at where your head is. I mean, at one stage, I discovered I was on a couple of times in my career, I've been on the edge of burnout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I stepped back and said, well, look, if I want to continue doing this job, I need to do that. So I joined a choir. It's great. When you're trying to learn music, you have to concentrate. I'm learning Italian very badly. Wow. But it's just about you've got to concentrate and, and do that and, and just going for lovely walks and, you know, just getting out to clear your head. I love going into a park or, you know, going down the beach. So it's 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 the importance of that and actually living that, you know. So for me, uh, I, I want to instill that in all of our professionals, our registrants, but also the staff who are working in regulation. So we have to make sure for everybody working that you have very clear dates for breaks. My, throughout my career I've always known when my next break was coming 
That mm. was great. I'd work my, you know, I'd really work hard for the, you know, whatever, it's eight weeks, six to eight weeks, and then I'd take my break and I'd know that I was doing that. And it doesn't have to be doing anything special. It's just taking a break and stepping back. I think since COVID, I really worry that people are, you know, using phones and holidays and things. I had a member of staff who was working so hard, I actually took her phone off her before she went on holidays. <laughs> and I think actually, we should, as bosses, we probably should be doing that more often than, than not because people are tending to check phones. Well, I'll just check. That's an hour of your holiday gone. That's right. five, you know, if you're doing that for five days. And holidays are so precious. So I think it's really important that people actually get a break. Yeah. I, you know, we talked about this earlier. We, uh, My wife and I came out early um, about five days to explore southern Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I lived out in Utah before, so I was very familiar with it, but we were in so many areas where there was no signal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard even still to, to put that phone away, but it, how important it is to, to completely unplug, especially before a conference like this. Yeah. I was very excited to be at the conference, and I'm excited to go back to work based on all the information and conversations, yeah. the you know certainly the sessions and, and things like that but also these little side conversations Absolutely. that we pull aside so yeah. and i think in, in clear that's that's the really positive thing like we're all you know dealing with different issues i mean it's fascinating over the last 15 years what's been a change like dei is something that i think clear is taking the lead in in um, sure. registry and it's brilliant you know i think other regulatory groups should be looking at that and um, but also um i think you know like 10 years ago it was the military movement and about the compacts and that so i think it's been interesting to see what the issues are in in, in europe uh, we've had an interesting uh, change in regulation in that the uh, they've always been the freedom of movement for certain professions and now if you want to regulate a new profession you've got to go through a whole process in the european union about well do that does that profession really need to be regulated i think there's a little bit of that going on i mean i was always blown away by the american uh what's the term where they close one down and um where they do an investigation to see whether that regulation is still needed. Oh, um, sunsetting. Sunsetting, mm-hmm. and yeah, sunrise. So I, I remember going back to Dublin with this great idea, sunsetting, sunrising, you know. Right. And we're going, oh, yeah, yeah. But actually, I believe it's very difficult to do, <laughs> actually. <laughs> that it is. Uh-huh. Well, I, I know you've, you've mentioned before that your retirement is a, a rewiring rather than a complete departure from the regulatory community, which as a member of CLEAR, I'm excited to hear because that means we're not losing you even though you're retiring from Karoo. But uh, I guess, could you share some of your plans and vision for your continued contribution to to this field? Yeah, I mean, there's one project I'm looking at at the moment which I'll know more about next week. But I think, you know, because we've managed to set up a multi-professional regulator and I think in certain countries uh, people are moving towards that, particularly with smaller professions, I think it's very hard to be a small regulator because you've got to do if you've only got a thousand members and you have to do your fitness to practice, you've got to make sure your codes are right. That's actually quite impossible. I think we've demonstrated by actually bringing groups like one of our professions. I think it's got 600 in it. It's a really small number. That on its own, it's just too little. So I think, you know, the, the, we've kind of done it. And um, I, I would hope that that experience would be helpful. 100%. So uh, what advice or words of wisdom would you offer to aspiring leaders uh, you know, in the field of occupational professional regulation, based on your extensive expertise and, and accomplishments, I think being open to hearing how people are doing. Eighty percent of what we do is the same. The language would be slightly different. Uh, I think if you ha- if you're grappling with something, discuss it with the colleague because I'm sure they're grappling with it as well. 
Uh, I've always believed in Pinch Perfect. When we when I started out, I was very lucky. Mark Seal was the CEO and Anna van der Gag was the chair of the Health Professions Council in the UK. And they were so good at sharing stuff. Uh, and so I believe a Pinch and Perfect, I mean, certainly from a career point of view, anything we've done, if anybody wants it, we're very happy to give it over and then look and see, does that work for you or not? So that sharing of knowledge and information is really good. And I remember a uh, good few years ago, the Ontario College of Teachers did terrific work on social media which we were grappling with. So it was great to go and say, look, can we have a look at that and use it? So I think what happens, look, all of a, all agencies have strengths and weaknesses. And if you can play to each other's strengths, that makes our community much stronger. Well, uh, thank you for, for joining me today. And also thank for your many years of service to CLEAR, uh, serving as a president for our organization too. And uh, it's a lot of, a lot of uh, big shoes to fill um, and, uh, we're very thankful to have you here and, and super excited about your award for the Regulatory Excellence Award. We appreciate your And your during my speech, I did. I have to praise Adam Parfit because the, we, the, the, the members of the board and the members, the presidents come through and go, Adam is there and he's really strongly in the background. And I suppose in Carew as the executive leader, that's what I was doing as well. It's so important to have strong executive leaders and Clear is really, you know, very fortunate to have Adam. And I think, you know, the for me, what's going to be different is swapping away from being an executive leader to being a, a non-executive leader where you're actually uh, just reviewing and maybe looking at how improving, but not actually delivering. So friends of mine have said that's a really great place to be. Um, mm. And I'd also just like to thank everybody in Crew who've done phenomenal work. It's been just such a pleasure work, working with them. Uh, so enthusiastic, seeing lovely new people coming in. It's just great. So... Um, and also, I think the other regulators in Ireland are very small, but we do work closely together. So thank you. Well, I have to echo your, your, your thoughts on, on Adam. I think, um, you know, as a past president and now I'm a past president, um, you know, the I think we all understand that Adam has a significant role mm -hmm. that he plays here. But um, serving that role of president, you learn how valuable he is that other people don't ever see. So I'm mm -hmm. glad you mentioned that because Good. he's he's a fantastic asset to Absolutely this organization. Brilliant. Yeah. So thank you, Lion. Absolutely. Thank um, you for meeting me here oh, in Salt I'm Lake and, to. and doing this in person, uh, it's, you know, it's being fabulous, able to be it? back in person again. So I know. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Take care. Dean Bernard is the recipient of CLEAR's Service Award for a Lifetime Achievement, which recognizes an individual who has made an outstanding contribution and commitment to CLEAR demonstrating dedication and integrity. The nominees shall have shown exceptional leadership, vision, and creativity in fulfillment of the goals and objectives of CLEAR. Here's my conversation with Dean. I've, I've been good friends with him for many years. Well, Dean, congratulations on receiving this award, and thanks for sitting down with me to chat about it here in Salt Lake. Um, again, really excited to talk with you. We've known each other for a long, long time, um, from back in investigative days when we both were investigators. But, um, <laughs> but I guess if you could, um, you know, kind of share with us the journey that led you from nursing to policing and then eventually into the field of healthcare uh, professional regulation. I mean, like, so what What really motivated this transition and, and how did it shape your career path from there? It, that's a great question. It's a question I get asked all the time, of course, because I, I, you know, people wonder, how do you do that? Like, why would you do that, right? And um, I'd love to say there was a master plan, uh, but like, 
you know, so many young folks, you know, I entered into nursing, I was very young, um, really wasn't sure any of these things were my chosen career path. So I, you know, it's like, well, you try it, see, see how it goes. And, uh, and that's what I did. Um, you know, I, I wasn't sure I really wanted these things. And, and some people have said to me that I have this six year itch. Um, and I, I did for a while. Um, but, you know, I got into nursing and it wasn't really quite working for me. It wasn't what I really wanted. Decided policing would be good. Then decided that wasn't going to work. I went back to school, did a, another degree. I just had a couple of courses left because I'd been chiseling away at it. And, uh, and then I saw an ad basically in the paper for the College of Nurses of Ontario for an investigator. And, you know, just thinking, of it, I, I thought, well, nurse, cop, sounds like it might be a good fit. Applied for the job, got it and uh, really never looked back. I mean, it was, it was uh, you know, it was really, for me, uh, I knew very early on this was the best decision for me. And, and looking back on it now, it definitely was the best decision. I fit in, I felt like there was room to progress. I felt there was like so many things to learn, so many different avenues I could go down. Um, you know, it was just very, uh, very engaging. And it didn't take long, I became the manager of the investigations team. and. Uh, then had the ability to start affecting change, uh, which for me was uh, exciting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just uh, then started my own business, and that was in 2004, and, and, and here we are. It's just, been, uh, it's just been a wonderful journey, and I've had a lot of great mentors, a lot of great coaches uh, who've helped me grow along the way, and they all were people that were, you know, seasoned regulatory people who brought me into the fold, taught me what I needed to know, and it's just been a wonderful journey ever since. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes me, uh, I guess, so connected to you too is we have a similar path in that, you know, I, I, I dropped out of a PhD program actually here in, in Utah in Salt Lake um, as an exercise physiologist, right? And so it wasn't until I was on a bicycle ride with one of the other investigators for the North Carolina Dental Board that he told me about an opening and the, the challenge of taking my, I guess, medical background, if you would, applying it to dentistry, but also, I've done a lot of writing, and so it just seemed like a good fit. So we both kind of, if you would, fell into regulation not by uh, a direct path, um, and so it's very interesting. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I, I know you've been a regular speaker, Clear. I mean, I've, I've, I've spoken with you. We've been at conferences many times. You've authored and delivered training on, on regulatory investigations. I think, could you elaborate maybe on the specific contributions you've made to advancing best practices in regulatory investigations? Because I know that's kind of like the focus of what you're doing now. What, and, and from that, I guess, what impact have these initiatives had on, on the field itself? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I always go back to my first sort of, what I consider sort of my biggest single accomplishment, um, where I developed a process for investigating illegal practitioners. Uh, in Ontario, in Canada, um, it was a it, what I discovered early on in my days in in, uh, in regulation was that that wasn't being dealt with very aggressively, hmm. uh, and I think a lot of it had to do with just you know a lack of understanding. And this is where I was able to draw on some of my previous background of policing um, and being generally a little bit more aggressive, perhaps uh, right. just as a as a person. And uh, and it, it it worked out. Well, I, I did a. I investigated this one case that was uh, very big. In fact, it was uh, the basis for a nomination for Investigator of the Year back in 2001, which I was privileged to receive uh, from I Clear. I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very early days for me. Um, but uh, over the years, I think, especially since I've been on my own, I've really, 
I made a decision early on I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to provide education. I wanted to provide courses, um, you know, be a, a, an educational resource for individuals. It's led to me creating my YouTube channel. It's led to me creating the podcast more recently. Um, I've really tried to push to advance concepts like trauma-informed investigations, incorporating DEI into, mm-hmm. um, into investigations. And those two things actually overlap quite a bit. Um, but, you know, I really just... Uh, even in, even doing things, you know, just to give you an example, the, the in Ontario way back in the day, and it still exists, um, the power to obtain a search warrant as a regulatory investigator exists, hmm. and nobody had ever done it. Hmm. And I was like, and I'm like, why? It was like I was this guy who came and said, why don't we do this? Why can't we do that? And um, and to you know, to their credit, the people around me who called the shots on these things were willing to take a chance on me trying to advance some of these things. And so I feel like you know my contributions have been, uh, you know, just this never-ending desire to continue to advance the profession. And more recently, it's been trauma-informed practice and DEI. What the future holds, who knows? I think AI is something that we're going to have to start looking at how we embrace that. So. Um, yeah, I think it's just a, a desire to advance investigate, regulatory investigations in general and be that guy who contributes, right? right? Not the only contributor, but someone who can help to to make a difference. Well, and I was fortunate enough to sit in uh, part of your talk this morning uh, with, with TI and DEI, and I think uh, it's very exciting about what you, you've got going on. And, and I can certainly agree with you that, you know, AI is one of those things that we're going to have to address uh, you know, sooner than later, I think, as, as, as the processes continue to improve. So the nomination mentions that your expertise is uh, relied upon by regulators for critical decision making, such as, you know, managing police interactions and advising on all aspects of regulatory investigations. So could you, you know, for our listeners, provide some examples of maybe how your guidance has influenced regulatory uh, decisions and maybe in, even improve their process? Yeah, I mean, one of the big ways that I think I've had a, I guess if I had to pick one thing that's sort of been the biggest impact in this regard has been encouraging the use of alternative dispute resolution. So not so much investigations, but saying, hey, you know what, not everything, not everything is best resolved through an investigation process. There are lots of other ways we can get things done. And I've been fortunate that perhaps because of the length of time I've been in this area, in this field, and maybe my past in in management uh, you know, a lot of regulators have given me the respect to listen to my thoughts, to my ideas, and some have accepted them, some haven't. Um, but it, I, one of my favorite things is when you know a director of uh, investigations or professional conduct or a registrar calls me and says, "Hey, we're dealing with an issue here. What are your thoughts? What, do you, what, what are some things we could do? How do you, how do you think we might want to approach this?" Um, and, 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 you know, it's humbling to be the guy that they pick the phone up and call. I'm sure I'm not the only one, but uh, it, it's been, uh, it's been uh, just a real joy to, to engage with them on that level. It's not, hey, Dean, we have another investigation we want you to do or we want your team to do. It's let's brainstorm about this. Let's strategize about this. What, what's going to be the best approach? Maybe it's something as simple as, you know, we think this person has information on a cell phone. Can we get that information? 
right? What can we do to get that information? And you know, they're asking me to talk about, okay, what are the legal approaches we can take to get the phone? Once we get the phone, what are the possibilities of being able to extract from the phone what we need? Right. And my network of experts, I'm not a forensics expert, but I know people who are, so I can reach out to them and draw on their expertise and then we can work together. So it's, um, it's that kind of relationship that I've been able to build with so many of our clients that uh, it's allowed me to sort of get in on the front end of things and, and help to influence the direction that's taken, the strategy that's used, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's fantastic. So the nomination also mentions your commitment to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, uh, in the regulatory process. Uh, certainly something that CLEAR is obviously committed to as well. Right. Um, could you provide some insights into how you have incorporated DEI into your practices of, of training and publications? Yeah, um, well, I've been a proponent, obviously, of, of, of DEI for a very long time. Um, and it's been in recent years that it's become more in the spotlight. Um, but, um, but I think my, you know, my, my, if I look at it sort of, look at the path of how that, ha how that happened early on. And when I say early on, I mean, you know, four or five years ago, right. um, there was this idea that we don't know what we don't know. So the first thing we need to do is educate ourselves. So my team needs to be educated. I need to be educated. We don't have all the answers. Right. So that was where it's like, okay, let's take, let's have the whole team take mental health first aid. Let's have the whole team, let's bring in an expert in anti-black racism. Let's have the whole team learn about that. Let's, uh, let's gather as much information as we can about trauma-informed practices. Let's bring in an expert to talk to us about that. So it's been very much about sort of us gathering um, that kind of, um, that kind of uh, uh, information to make our practice better. And then as we have improved on our practice, it's, it's that experience combined with the knowledge has made us uh, has put us in a position where we can start to uh, share that knowledge, share those skills right. and experiences, and that's what I've been trying to do. So, you know, not long ago, um, I provided a free um, to free to all regulators in Canada uh, a talk on incorporating DEI into your investigative work, incorporating DEI into a regulator's work more broadly. So, um, it's really just been about a, a real push um, to sort of highlight these things. Mm -hmm. I don't consider myself an expert in DEI by any stretch of the imagination, but I love to surround myself with people who are. Uh, my podcasts, I have a, my own podcast, um, it's called We've Seen a Thing or Two, and uh, I've, I've had a couple of episodes where I've brought experts onto the podcast you know, to answer questions and share information with us, and it's through that kind of effort that I'm, I'm trying to get it out there. Um, but again, I don't have all the answers, so I'm trying to create opportunities for others with those answers to share their skills, share their knowledge and expertise. That's fantastic. I think you've even got uh, Mark Spector going to be joining you on your podcast before too long. And uh, you know, he's, he's going to be taking over as president at the end of this 2022-2023 um, season. So yeah. um, we're excited about the, the work he's certainly done in DEI, and, and I, I know you're excited about working with him too. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we actually had a great uh, session just today um, with uh, Daniel Rakima, Stacey Mason, mm -hmm. Mark Spector, myself, um, what you, meant, you mentioned it earlier, but uh, I love working with those people because they, you know, there's just so much to be, to be learned um, and we have fun. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but it's, uh, we're all learning together in different ways. And so, yeah, it's, uh, I'm excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess uh, finally, can you uh, maybe share any future plans or initiatives that you may have in store uh, for the regulatory community, maybe, maybe even how you envision your continued contributions to CLEAR and to the field in the years to come? 
Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting question because I am by no means done. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because I'm getting this award for sort of the lifetime award. I, I, I was going to address that in a little bit because uh, the fact that uh, it's a lifetime award and you're just barely into your lifetime is how I look at it. But. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you. I, I look younger than I am, maybe. Um, we both do, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, no, it's, it's, um, it's one of those things that, that I, I definitely see making more of a contribution, continuing. One of the things I did for, actually for the first time is I went to the mid-year meetings um, mm-hmm. last year for CLEAR. And... Um, and it was a great experience. And so my plan is to continue to do that. So uh, that's something that I've, I've not been as involved in, um, you know, mainly as a business decision because, you know, unlike working for a regulator, these are costs. This costs us right. money to Absolutely. do these things. Um, the international component of it, I'm really, I see how clear um, is really becoming the international organization. They're mm-hmm. expanding into different parts of the world. I really want to be a part of that. So I see myself definitely trying to engage on that side of things, trying to learn from what's happening in different parts of the world and either incorporating that into the work that we do or sharing, like all of it. Like I think it's, um, I think there's a lot of great opportunity uh, to do that. Um, I haven't even ruled out the possibility of maybe running for the board for Clear one day. Um, Fantastic. You know, I, I, there's, there's just, this is what's so wonderful about organizations like this is there's so many opportunities and uh, so many ways you can give back. So um, I don't have a concrete plan on a specific thing, but I do know that it's, it's definitely in, in the works to be continuing to contribute uh, in any way that Clear would like me to. Absolutely. We'll, we'll welcome you with open arms to any of our committees. We have a lot of uh, committees that meet in the, uh, the winter um, at, at the mid-year meeting. So Yeah, I'm actually on the DEI committee for CLEAR. Well, I'm going to add you to at least another one too, but <laughs> we'll talk about that after the podcast. Sounds but uh, I did want to just uh, congratulate you on this Lifetime Achievement Award from CLEAR, and I just want to thank you for being a part of this and being part of this podcast today. Well, thank you. It's been absolutely a joy. I'm humbled. Great people have got that award, and it's really nice to be included in that company. And uh, and so it's very meaningful to me, very meaningful. And uh, and thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, well deserved. And like I said, even though it's a lifetime achievement award, um, you're you're just getting started. <laughs> I hope so. I hope I have many more years to be a good contributor. Right on. Thank you, Dean. <laughs> thank you, Lyne. It was a lot of fun to sit down with our award recipients while we were in Salt Lake City. We hope these conversations have given you some ideas, techniques, and skills that you can focus on in your regulatory role as we all pursue regulatory excellence. I want to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode. Tune in next month for part two of our conversations with the 2023 award recipients. If you're new to the Clear Podcast, please subscribe to us. You can find us on Podbean or any of our favorite podcast services. If you've enjoyed this podcast episode, please leave a rating or comment in the app. These reviews help us to improve our ranking and make it easier for new listeners to find us. Feel free to also visit our website at www.clearhq.org for additional resources as well as a calendar of upcoming programs and events. Finally, I'd like to thank our Clear staff, specifically Stephanie Thompson, She is our content coordinator and editor for this program. Once again, I'm Lyne Dempsey, and I hope to be speaking to you again very soon.